Good morning. Who's happy it's Thanksgiving week? I know I am. I, uh, I need more Thanksgiving days in my life. I have, uh, people who know me know that I have probably more rants-giving days than Thanksgiving days. In fact, uh, I think those of you know, Charlie, Charlie Brown's wrote in a great book of his poetry called In the Lantern's Light, and he's promised that I get to write the sequel, and it's called In the Ranter's Light. I just need to get John Byers to take a picture of me holding a candle with a scowl on my face so that we can cover. So that's coming, working on that. So. Um, uh, I think some of you know that I'm not a preacher by trade. Uh, I'm actually an attorney, and uh, a lot of my cases involve uh, determining how much somebody should get paid uh, for property that has to be acquired for a public project. And um, every once in a while, my cases go to a jury trial. Uh, This fall, I actually had two of them go to jury trials, almost back-to-back. And one of them, in September, (laughs) I had the fun ordeal of... uh, the case ending, the Arctic case, gave it to the jury, and I thought they would come back with a verdict at the end of the day. Well, they didn't. So I had the privilege of going home and agonizing overnight about what they were going to do the next day. And that was, admittedly, a night of much turmoil and prayer and discussion with God <clears throat> and thinking about God's goodness and thinking about my situation and and. and what does God's goodness mean? And what can I count on? And what can I pray for? And in this situation, I felt like I'd done a really good job on the case. I felt like it, we put together a good case. I'd done a really good job. And I felt like I deserved a good result. But I knew it didn't work that way that I could just say, Lord, I pray that result is really in my favor tomorrow and know that that was going to happen because I know life doesn't work that way and God sometimes has other plans. So I struggle with this idea. So so if I can't do that, then what does it mean when it says God's good and and how can I count on him to be good? And and even that night, I think at some point, and part of you understand that when you go to these trials, these verdicts become kind of public evaluations of your ability as an attorney, because there's no way to hide. You get a bad verdict, and it's published in the paper, and the office knows. So I was feeling a lot of anxiety about it, but even that night, even praying, and I'm just being honest here, my prayer to the Lord was almost, Lord, please let the verdict be good tomorrow, because I'm worried that if it's not, my confidence and ability to trust in your goodness is going to be, take a hit. And I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I didn't want doubt about his goodness. This Thanksgiving week is a time when we typically set time aside to think more about what we're thankful for and to think more about God's goodness. And maybe there's some of you here today who um, who are maybe just struggling with doubts or questions about what God's goodness means and can I count on his goodness and what can I pray for and what can I count on him? Just what, what does his goodness mean? I'm going to share with you this morning my journey, struggling over that, um, 
idea, that concept, that reality about God the last couple months. And uh, hopefully some of you can relate to that. But I want to say this up front, that I think this is a really important issue. And there's a lot at stake. Wrong thinking about God's goodness or non-thinking, either one, wrong thinking or non-thinking about God's goodness, the word I use is perilous and hazardous. And so I think this is an important issue, and I'll get into, give you my reasons why as we go through. I want to give you a little bit of background to my struggle, just to give you some sense of kind of how I try to work through things. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was studying Romans 1 and 2, and I was struck by how much Paul talks about God's attributes and how really sin ultimately, the origin of sin in us is essentially living in denial or ignoring some key attribute of God's character, his holiness, his sovereignty, his immutability, his omniscience. And about the same time, I had the privilege of being able to preach one of the sermons on Jonah, when we did Jonah, I think, two summers ago. And I preached on one verse in particular from when Jonah was in the whale, and he said, those who cling to, well, go, those, him, forgetting the verse, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And it really struck me that I needed to have more discipline in my life, develop the discipline of thinking more about the attributes of God as part of my prayer life. Because if I didn't, there's the danger of, rather than praying to the God as described in Scripture, I'd be praying to a God that supports or fits into my passions or my desires or my baggage or my issues or however I want God to be. And so I needed that check to make sure that I'm not praying to a worthless idol, a God of my own creation, but praying to the God that's described in Scripture. And so I started putting in my journal, in my my prayer journal, a lot of times I would just write down sovereignty, holiness, omniscience, immutability. I tried to do that even before I began praying, just to make sure that that's the God I'm praying to. That's the attributes of the God I'm praying to. And so if you looked in my journal, you'd see that those words scribbled in a lot of places, sometimes in the border, sometimes in the body. And eventually I just started using, what's it when you use one word for each? An anagram? I just started using the letters S-H-O-I as almost my name for God, just to remember, just to tie in those words of sovereignty, holiness, omniscience and immutability closely to him as I was praying. And then I added three more attributes as I was reading in Romans 2, and Paul talked about God's goodness and his patience and his loving kindness or his, or, or, or his mercifulness, if that's a word, and how it's his goodness that leads to repentance. And so I added those to the resume so that when I talked about, wrote down his sovereignty, his holiness, his omniscience, his immutability, I'd also write, and and he's good. Because it's important to remember that I'm praying to God who's good, and a God who's patient, and a God who's merciful. And I realize that this is an important part 
of spiritual warfare also. Because this is exactly where Satan tries to get at us. He wants to get us to live in denial or forget or ignore some attribute of God. And so I organized them in my mind this way. Oh, it's up here. That I kind of divided them up into the before I sin attributes of God because... Did I spell sovereignty right? I don't know if I did or not, but I guess it doesn't matter. That if I, when I want to control and hold on to things, I'm living in denial of his sovereignty. When I struggle with lust or give in to lust, I'm living in denial of his holiness. When I'm one way with one group of people and another way with another group of people, I'm living in denial of his omniscience. When I continue patterns, bad patterns, thinking that somehow this time it's going to turn out differently or that God's going to respond differently, I'm living in denial as immutability. So Satan's trying to get you to live in denial, get you to sin by get you to ignore one of these attributes of God. And then after you sin, and we've talked about in our men's group, Gary's heard this before, that I think Satan kind of flips a switch on you. Because after you sin, you're much more aware of his holiness. So Satan doesn't come at you that way. Satan now wants you to ignore or not recognize his goodness or his patience or his loving kindness. So the voice now is, you can't be forgiven. God's not going to forgive you again. God's not going to be good to you now because you've done that. God doesn't really know what's good for you. Satan knows that it's God's goodness, and kindness that leads us to repentance. But that's where Satan's going to attack us. He wants to attack us there. He's going to work overtime to get us to not believe, to not, to have doubt in his goodness. Because the last thing Satan wants us to, to be doing is living a life of repentance. Now, some of you, maybe you've struggled with that very kind of spiritual battle. So notwithstanding this system that I came up with, a couple months ago I did enter into a season in which I struggled with doubt, understanding God's goodness. After I got back from Spain in August, I essentially entered into a stormy season, one of the stormiest seasons of my career. Uh, the second day back, my who I call my most valuable attorney who works for me, told me that she's leaving because she's going to go start her own practice. And she pretty much picked, you know, I kind of said to her, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. It was pretty much the worst point in which she could leave because we were entering into just about the busiest point in my career. I ended up having to do a trial in August, a trial in September, and then another trial in October launching one of the biggest projects I've ever had to launch. And it was almost as if God, as long as I knew it at the time, that God was saying, I'm not, having come back from a mission trip, I'm not going to let you slide back into complacency. I'm not going to let you slide away from depending on me. So I had all these things thrown at me, and it was certainly a season of storm. And I had no choice but to trust in him. I had the problems were too big for me. I had no choice but to, but to look to him and trust in him. But in the middle of that, 
I did have this season where I wrestled with and struggled with understanding his goodness. And, and the, what brought it on, interestingly enough, was I was reading a uh, commentary on the book of Joshua by James Montgomery Boyce, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators. I read a lot of his material. But in the, in the end of Joshua, chapter 4, I think it is, Joshua's addressing the nation of Israel and telling them that they should follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is why they should, and among other reasons, they should follow him because God is good. And so to illustrate this, Boyce in the commentary cites a whole series of verses, mostly from the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms, that talk about God's goodness and express it in a number of different ways. God's law is good. God doesn't hold back anything good from those who love him. God is a sun and shield. We'll read those verses later, the end of the sermon. But in reading those verses, I felt, I felt a sense of hollowness. I didn't feel like I could embrace those verses the way I should be. That why, why does that not hit home for me? There's, some, there's, some, something, there's something about God's goodness that I don't get or fully embrace why does the Bible say he's good and not that he's great? And, and what, what does it mean when we say God is good? Not everything that happens in my life seems to be good. Not everything that happens in the world is good. So, so what does that mean? I, I know that I can't ask for whatever I want and God gives it. I know it doesn't work that way. And like in my case of my trial where I really felt like the right thing was for this to be a good outcome. But yet knowing I can't pray for that and know that that's what God's going to do. So if I can't do that, then how do I believe in God's goodness? How can I count on his goodness? And I thought about in Romans 8, where Paul talks about how we've been given a spirit of sonship that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, so God, God's my father. And I thought about that, and I thought about my daughter, Evan Ray, and I know, I know how much I want her to have a great life, to have a fulfilling life, and to be happy, and to be successful. And I know the lengths to which I would go, the things I would do, if I could make that happen, tell me what I've got to do, and I would do it. I would do anything to make sure that she lives a fulfilling, happy, successful life. But why is it, and some of you maybe struggle with this too, why is it that I have a hard time believing that God looks down on me the same way? Why, why is it that I have a hard time believing that God loves me and wants good for me as much? I mean, I'm, I'm created in God's image, right? So whatever feeling of love and goodness that I want for my daughter must come from him. But why? Why do I struggle with perceiving that God looks upon me the same way? And I realized that this, this doubt about God's goodness wasn't something that I wanted, and it wasn't something that was, that was good, because, again, if it's God's goodness that leads to repentance... Doubt about God's goodness discourages repentance. And I knew that the last thing I wanted 
was to spiral into a pattern of not repenting anymore because uh, I know the wickedness of my heart and I know where I would end up if I eventually just fell out of a pattern of repenting. Didn't want to spiral away. And then the other part is, again, I need God. I need, you know, when I was in Spain, I just had this concept of God being this fortress that they place in places where the fort, from the fortress you can see everything that's coming. And that's, that's what God is. God is this fortress that we can rush into and count on because he sees everything that's coming. He's omniscient, right? He's sovereign. But is he a good fortress? Can I count on that? And I knew I needed to. And, that, and that's why I said earlier today, and I think this is, if there's a first takeaway I want you to take away today, it's that doubt about God's goodness is a significant problem not to be taken lightly. And if that's the place where you're at, I would encourage you to wrestle with it and resolve it. Again, because doubt about God's goodness undermines our desire to repent, and it undermines our desire to take refuge. That's why this is an important issue. And this during this Thanksgiving season, if you're having doubts or uncertainties about God's goodness, wrestle with them, resolve them. And if you think about it, this is really the spiritual battle that's been going on since creation. I mean, the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve at its essence was, does God really know what is best for you? This is the spiritual battle that has gone on from the beginning of time. Satan, from the beginning of time, has tried to erode our belief in God's goodness because God's goodness leads to repentance, the last thing Satan wants. So how did I reconcile this doubt, this gap between what the Bible says about God's goodness and what seems to happen in life? Things don't always go our way. I got a good verdict in September, but I've gotten bad rulings and bad verdicts before, and I know I'm going to get them again. Things are not always go, going to go my way. They're not always going to turn out the way I'd like them to, or they're not even always going to turn out the way it seems that objectively they should turn out. O.J. Simpson gets acquitted. Does that seem fair? But So how do you reconcile things like that? I'm not going to invoke O.J. That's... Dating myself. Uh, so, how did he work that out in my life? How did he pull me out of the mire? The first thing he did was he convicted me of using my doubt and uncertainty and struggle understanding his, his goodness as an excuse for not thanking him for the goodness, the good things that I did see. And I realized that, that I was shying away from God and not at least giving him thanks for clearly good things that he was doing in my life. And that led me to recognize that the problem was that it was a form of, this sounds a little harsh, wickedness on my part in the sense that I wanted to be the final arbiter, the final judge of what good in my life looks like. I didn't want to leave that to God. 
I want to be the judge and determiner of what good in my life looks like. So how do you change that? I recognize that was a problem. How do I get out of that funk? Well, the very next day was a very turbulent day at my work. And I know that because the day after, in my journal, my can't read my writing. My journal, I wrote this. I said, the next day, I need Psalm 37 bad today. Yesterday, at one point or another, I was irritated at about five or six different partners of mine, and then I even put their names down. I can't live like this. And Psalm 37 says, begins with the words, do not fret. And so I went back and read Psalm 37, and we're going to be, and that's actually, there's an excerpt of Psalm 37 in the bulletin, I think the first nine verses. So I went back and studied Psalm 37. I remembered, and I read a a James Montgomery Boyce commentary that I'd read a few years ago on Psalm 37. I was reminded that whereas most times in Scripture, passages in the New Testament are interpreting and expounding on elaborating on passages or concepts in the Old Testament. This is an example of the opposite, that Psalm 37 is actually an elaboration, not the right word, expansion, explanation of a teaching in the New Testament. And the particular teaching is Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I realized that meekness is what was missing in my life. When I want to be the ultimate judge of what good in life life means, I'm missing meekness. And let me just read for you what I wrote that morning when I realized that. I said, Meekness means trust and surrender. Meekness means believing in God's faithfulness and goodness, even when it is temporarily unseen. Meekness is not about locking in so much to what I want and what I think I need, than doubting or questioning if I can trust in God's goodness, simply because I look at what I want and have to recognize that I may not get what I want, then process that gap by doubting that God can be as very much a loving father as I can be, Tevin Ray. Because the flip side is, if I can conceive of a situation where what Evan Ray thinks is good for her is different than what I think is good for her, then why in the world would I doubt that the same is true even more so when my father is the sovereign, unchanging Yahweh who is the castle that sees everything that's coming and he's perfectly holy. And so I asked for forgiveness for my lack of meekness. I realized that morning that meekness is the key to reconciling the gap between God's goodness and things not always going as we would like them to go. And Psalm 37, good, it's up here, does a great job of laying out what meekness looks like. In fact, I've decided to label... The whole text is in the bulletin, 
But I decided to label these verses what I would call the Ten Commandments of Meekness. And I'm just going to go through them. Probably each of them is worthy of separate study, separate devotion. But they're all great verbs of meekness. One, do not fret. Two, be not envious. Three, trust in the Lord. Four, cultivate faithfulness. Five, delight in the Lord. Six, commit your way to the Lord. Seven, rest in the Lord. Eight, cease from anger. Nine, forsake wrath. And ten, wait for the Lord. Those are all facets of this idea of meekness that we need to develop. And we could spend time talking about each of them. It's funny. Just this morning, just this morning, as I was getting ready, and I made the mistake of checking my email, I got a kind of nasty, snippy email from my opposing counsel on a case. This is Sunday morning at 7.30. And I was... I so wanted to give him a piece of my mind. But that wouldn't be very meek, would it? And then I thought, well, maybe what I'll just do is be cute and say something like, hey, Mike, this guy's name is Mike. It's Sunday morning. Maybe you should be in church. But then I realized that wouldn't be very meek either, would it? Right? That, that's just another form of non-meekness, being a smart aleck. That's also not resting in the Lord. That's not ceasing from anger. That's not delighting in the Lord. And so, meekness presents a great challenge for us. And, uh, and, and, and the reality of this led me to a curiosity about all the Beatitudes. In fact, what I was going to say is that God in his grace didn't just leave me at the point of, okay, Mark, you need to be more meek. And just trust in my goodness. He took me further. And so I decided I need to look into not just meekness, but all the Beatitudes. Everybody know what the Beatitudes are? The Beatitudes are the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And they all begin with, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're going to get into them. These are... These are um, the words of Jesus, how he began his Sermon on the Mount. And I was aided by a great commentary by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount. And so some of these things that I'm going to discuss with you today borrowed from him. Great commentary. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a minister in London, post-World War, War II London. He, was a, he could have been one of the greatest doctors, medical doctors in England, but at age 38 or 39 decided... He wanted to preach the gospel instead. And he preached at a time post-war Great Britain where there was a great need for revival. And one of his messages was, if the last 50 years and two world wars have taught us anything, it's we can't just expect man to be basically good, to get along, to solve their own problems. This idea that man is progressing into a better and better state if two world wars didn't prove that wrong, nothing will. And so that was, that was one of the things he kept hammering away at, that, that we need revival, that we need to turn back to the word, that we need to turn back to God. So just a couple of things 
And I cannot do an entire study on the Beatitudes this morning, but I did want to give you an overview and some thoughts and encourage you to meditate on them this week. The first is that, although most translations it begins with blessed, another word is, is happy, that these Beatitudes are essentially a roadmap to happiness. Again, what I think is great about this is God doesn't just say, you need to trust me, be a man, trust me, trust that I'm good, even if you don't understand what goodness is. God actually says, no, trust that I'm good, and here's how you can be happy. Here's the roadmap to happiness so that you don't have to wonder about my goodness. But note that happiness is not the goal. Happiness is the product of pursuing something else. Happiness is the result of pursuing something else. It's not a coincidence that one of the Beatitudes is not, it's blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus didn't say blessed are those that hunger and thirst for happiness. That's not in there. It's blessed are those who do other things, who pursue other things. The second point about the Beatitudes, and we'll get to that, is that these character traits, and in the bulletin, we have Matthew 5, verses 3 to 11, which is where the Beatitudes are, if you want to read them. They are character traits that only Christians can have as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. They are not to be confused with someone's natural tendencies or personality or disposition. So you may meet, know a non-Christian who's gentle or doesn't get angry or isn't aggressive. That is not the same as the meekness that Jesus is talking about. These traits come to us only through the work of the Holy Spirit. They're not natural disposition, personality, something like that. And because they come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, as Christians, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we all can and should aspire to all of these traits. The distinction here is with the spiritual gifts. It's not as if I'm the peacemaker guy and Marshall's the meek guy and John's the merciful guy. No, we all need to mourn over our sin. We all need to aspire to be more meek. We all, with the work of the Holy Spirit, need to extend mercy and be peacemakers. We all should aspire to all of these traits set forth in the Beatitudes. The other thing I would note that you may recognize as you read through the Beatitudes is that you may hear, if you've been in here Sunday mornings the last couple of months, a sort of a James echo. Because a lot of the same concepts, James is essentially elaborating on the Beatitudes. A lot of the things we talk, James talks about, uh, not worrying not being proud, 
being gentle to orphans and widows, controlling your tongue. These are all basically elaborations on Jesus' teachings in the Beatitudes. James, I think, was the half-brother of Jesus, so he was elaborating on the Sermon on the Mount. I noticed specifically this morning in James 4, 8 to 10, he specifically says, purify your hearts. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Mourn, blessed are those that mourn. Humble yourselves, blessed are the meek. Don't speak against each other, blessed are the peacemakers. So, so there's a close tie-in between the Beatitudes and what we've learned in James. Next, and I think this is important. This really struck me uh, from reading uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' commentary. Is that, and, I, and I say this because I, I had to memorize the Beatitudes when I was in elementary school. And I just kind of thought of them as a list of, of traits. I never thought about them in terms of an intended order. But Jesus did have an intended order to the Beatitudes. He didn't just randomly throw seven or eight character traits on the wall. They build on each other from being poor in spirit to mourning to being meek. They are increasingly more difficult as they build on each other and as we rely more and more on the Holy Spirit. They involve a progression of emptying and then being filled and then being effective outwardly. We'll talk about that. So, so for example, here, the first three, being poor in spirit, recognizing as I stand before God, I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing I offer that saves me. There's nothing about me that gives me access to God on my own. On my own, I need Christ. That's being poor in spirit. Mourning. We all should be mourning over our sin. And then we can recognize the joy of being forgiven. That's also looking inward and being meek in terms of my position in relation to other people, not putting myself first, not looking out for my own interests, uh, not caring about myself as much as other people, not needing to control. And we talked about meekness earlier. So these are all beatitudes that involve looking inward. And then as a product of that process, we have a hunger and thirst. Go to the next slide. We have a hunger and thirst for righteousness in which we are promised that we are fulfilled. So we're constantly, not just on Sunday morning, but we're constantly seeking righteousness that comes in, 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 through Christ and seeking to become more and more like Christ. And then the next four have to do with engaging outward. And I think this is important as we want to be equipping you and we all want to become world changers that this is the process we need to go through. There's an inward process, poor in spirit, mourn, becoming more meek, that ultimately allows us to become more effective outwardly, extending mercy to people, being pure in our heart and our dealings with people in terms of integrity and kindness and honesty and fairness, being pure in our agenda as we deal with people, being peacemakers, and ultimately doing all those things and ultimately 
facing persecution. And I, I note also that there is a connection between, if we went back to the previous slide, we don't have to, but there's a connection between Beatitudes 1, 2, and 3 and 5, 6, and 7. Because we really can't be merciful to people until we've first gone through a process of brokenness and being poor in spirit before God. We really can't be pure in heart as we deal with other people if we haven't first gone through a process of mourning about our own sinfulness and asking for forgiveness. We can't be peacemakers that put other people's interests first, but put resolution first and not having my way and not winning. We can't be peacemakers until we first become meek. So there's a close connection between the, the inward beatitudes and the outward-focused beatitudes. One other observation, something to think about with respect to the beatitudes. On Friday morning, I was sitting down and I uh, just made two columns. I don't have a slide for this, but I made two columns. One, one that says God and then one that says me. And for the God column, I, I listed the attributes of God that we talked about earlier, sovereignty, etc., holiness. And then in the column next to it, thinking, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be about, I listed these beatitudes. And as I saw them on a column, I realized, wait, there's a correlation between each of them. There's a correlation between God's sovereignty and my need to be poor in spirit. God's holiness and my need to mourn for my sin. God's omniscience. And I need to recognize that God's omniscient and in control and everywhere. And therefore, I don't have to be in control. And therefore, I can submit and surrender to him. God's unchangingness, his immutability, and my call to be constantly, continuously hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it goes on and on. God's merciful, we're to be merciful. And, and that, what I think is great about that is that the Beatitudes are the road to happiness. And the reason we can know and be confident that these traits, this path, is the path to happiness is because ultimately it's the roadmap back to who God created us to be. In fact, even better way to think of it as, rather than a roadmap to happiness, it's the roadmap back to the garden, how God intended us to be and, and relate to him. Another way to look at it is, since the Beatitudes are the way in which we can be more like Christ, they are ultimately the mechanism by which God gives himself to us. I was reminded, I thought about that God giving himself to us. I was reminded of one of the verses that Cliff read back when we were studying Abraham. I think it's in chapter 15, where God says to Abraham, essentially, and depending on the translation, I like the translation, 
I shall be your very great reward. I like that because God's saying, I'm going to give myself to you. And that's really what the Beatitudes are. That's God's mechanism for giving himself to us. And I think you see that if you were to meditate on the column of his attributes, his attributes, and the column of what he calls us to be, and the correlation, we can be confident that this is a roadmap to happiness because it's the roadmap to how God gives himself to us. So let me try to bring this together and close. And I really think there's three, there's, if there's three big takeaways, it would be this. First one I already mentioned, that if you have doubts, struggling with understanding God's goodness, then I would encourage you to use this week as an opportunity to wrestle and resolve that. And it may take longer. Because again, it'll lead to you repenting more and it'll lead to you seeking refuge more. And ultimately, that's where we want to be, right? Second, that if you are struggling understanding God's goodness, or resisting it, doubting it, whatever may be the place I was at. As you go through this process, I think there's an excellent chance, you know, problem, diagnosis, that the diagnosis will be that one of the things wrong is that you need, if I may say so, you need more meekness in your life. Because meekness, again, is a mechanism by which we are able to say, okay, God, You decide what's good in my life. You define what's good in my life looks like, not me. And the good news to this is that God, again, God doesn't, this is my third point, that God doesn't just say, have blind faith in me. Have blind faith that I know what goodness, I have good intentions for you, and I know what goodness looks like, and you just need to believe me. He gives us the roadmap to happiness, to blessedness, to a place where there isn't this gap between what happens in my world and my life and what the Bible says about God's goodness. But, again, to benefit from that, and I liked what Cliff, Cliff quoted Chuck White last week. I liked the quote about getting a hold of, what was it, Cliff? Getting a hold of your wanter? He put it, that's, Chuck put it in a much more simpler term than I did, but I like that because we need, we do need to get in control of our wonder. We do need to be willing to conform. You know, you don't think about your, your wants or your desires or your passions as necessarily being a sin issue. But it can, they can be and they are because... We need to be willing to conform our sense of what goodness is, of what will make us happy. We need to conform that belief, that thought system, to what Scripture says, to what, how Scripture says we will be happy, what Scripture says goodness looks like, and we have that. So we've got to be willing to do that. God gives us the way, but we've got to be willing to say, okay, my concept of what is good in my life, 
has to conform to what Scripture says. I'm going to close by reading the verses on the back. There's these verses, God's goodness. Now, I'm going to read these. These are the very verses that I read in September and went, wow, I'm not so sure I buy into I'm not so sure I can embrace these. So as we read them, examine yourself. Ask yourself, do I really believe this, these verses, what these say about God's goodness? Do I really embrace them? And if your answer is yes, I really embrace them, happy Thanksgiving, pass the stuffing. It's great. Praise God. But if you are someone who hesitates or has uncertainty as you read these things or numbness or maybe you're a little detached, I mentioned earlier that not only is wrong thinking about God's goodness perilous, but non-thinking is too. Because if you're just somebody who never really thinks much about how good God is, that's not going to get you very far in terms of repentance. And that's, you're, you're, you're uh, sacrificing the ability to take refuge in God. So, so if you're feeling any of that uncertainty, numbness, detachment, then I would encourage you to do some of the things we've talked about this week. Meditate on God's attributes. Dig deeper on what meekness means for you what more meekness means in your life. Explore the Beatitudes. Maybe decide to take one each day for eight days and meditate on one, one a day. Because as we, as we take on these characteristics, with the aid and help of the Holy Spirit, we can be confident that we will experience happiness and blessedness. So I ask you to read along with me And then I'll close in prayer. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Turn away my reproach when I dread, for your ordinances are good. And lastly, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know that scripture is true. And scripture declares all of your attributes, including, not limited to, your goodness. 
But Lord, our hearts fail us. Our hearts are unclean. And the enemy attacks us on this point. The enemy wants so much to erode our belief in your goodness, to cast doubt, to make us wonder, to make us hesitant to repent, to make us hesitant to take refuge in you. Lord, we come to you this morning, we ask that you fill us with a renewed sense of your goodness. Forgive us for our lack of meekness. Forgive us for those times when we want to say, I want to decide what's good in my life. I don't trust that you know what's good in my life, Lord. I want it to be my way. Forgive us for our lack of meekness and give us more meekness. And maybe be poor in spirit more and more and more. Lord, thank you in your grace. Thank you in your grace that you don't just say, trust in me and be confused. Trust that I'm good and I'm not going to tell you how you can be happy. Thank you that you sent your son, as an incarnation of your character. And that your son laid out for us so clearly, so clearly, the path to blessedness and happiness and knowing your goodness. And thank you that your son not only spoke it, but gave us an example, a living example of meekness, of mercy, of being a peacemaker. Thank you for the example of your son and thank you that your son went to the cross so that we have access to you. Lord, this week of Thanksgiving, may we know more deeply and have more confidence in your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.